We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Caitlin Beatty, prominent journalist and author, joins Jim Lyon to discuss the evolving worlds of journalism and evangelicalism, QAnon, and a little thing called hope. Caitlin Beatty, thanks so much for joining us at the table today. We are so glad you're here. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, I want to disclose right up front that I'm a news junkie. You know, some people are fascinated by sports. Some people want to go hunting. Some want to build a business. Some want to fix their car. I mean, there's all kinds of disciplines of, of life that are passions for people. I don't care about any of that. But I want the news. I just get, I'm so like drawn into the news. It's almost uh, addictive. And so I -hmm. came from Seattle. I'm right now on the Northeast side of Indianapolis. And that's where my vocation has placed me. But I grew up in Seattle and I still read the Seattle Times every day online. And Mm -hmm. uh, that keeps me in touch with my home place. But then I read the Washington Post and the New York Times and I've, the Guardian from the UK, uh, I just can't get enough of it. And then if I'm in my car, I got Sirius XM radio so I could have all those news channels. <laughs> you know, I, mm-hmm, I know they mm-hmm. have 500 other channels, but I'm just about <laughs> the news. And I'm just giving you all that to say, wow, I'm so excited to talk to you because you work in the news. You are a journalist. You have become one of the most influential voices helping the world interpret uh, what's going on around us today, and especially with a lens of the church and the evangelical church, and and it's wrestling with power and place and persuasion and uh, politics. I mean, there's so much in that that not everyone understands. Uh, mm. I think because of your own journey in life, you've mm-hmm. been positioned well to be that interlocutor between uh, a community of people that may not always feel understood, as sometimes people in the church do, and a larger world uh, mm. that they are attempting to influence and are also influencing in both directions. And for all of those reasons, I'm so thankful you're here because I'm just like really anxious to get into <laughs> it with you. So I know that today you're uh, in Brooklyn, in New York City, mm-hmm. where you uh, mm-hmm. call home for the for this season of your life, but I know that's not your original home. Give me a little mm-hmm. bit of backstory about where you came from. Yeah, so I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, my parents are from Cincinnati, um, went to school in Michigan and then lived in the Chicago area for over 10 years. So I am a Midwesterner. This is my first time actually living outside Mm -hmm. of the Midwest. Um, I don't have the Brooklyn accent down yet. Um, but you've gone coastal. (laughs) I have, I've gone coastal. You know, I, I do, my parents would like me to come back at some point. They want you back in the middle. That will be, um, but yeah, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I came to Christ when I was a young teenager and so had a pretty standard evangelical upbringing, um, went to a Christian college for undergrad. And so I think that early life experience gave me a lot of firsthand knowledge of the evangelical world, even though I didn't at the time think of myself sure, as an sure, evangelical, sure, but sure. I learned later that's actually what I was a part of. Um, and then graduating from college, I went 
pretty much right into work with Christianity Today magazine, um, you know, magazine based in Chicago, founded by Billy Graham, the great celebrated evangelist. And, you know, that of course gave me just a real deep dive understanding. I mean, it's kind of like a bedrock of Mm -hmm. uh, publication and publishing uh, in any kind of currency for the evangelical world. Yeah, absolutely. I would say if someone has heard the E word thrown around and they want to know what is this all about, you know, don't go look up evangelical on Wikipedia, go to Christianity Today. Now, you know, CT doesn't reach every single self-identifying evangelical Christian in the U.S. But yeah, I was there for 10 years um, and I I just learned about different institutions, organizations, leaders. It kind of gave me this national uh, scope Mm -hmm. of the evangelical world. Because it has a lot of contacts. It has a lot of uh, lines out in many many parts of the country. But before we follow that out a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, this is a calling to write. You know, you're mm-hmm. talking about print media. You do speaking, of course, too, but you, you have a whole career in print media. Mm-hmm. Have you always liked to write? Is that something that you discovered when you went to high school or college? Or, <laughs> or what would you say? Well... Yes, writing has always felt extremely natural to me. You you hear people sometimes talk about, um, you know, people who are drawn to communication are usually either drawn to writing or speaking. And for me, writing is my kind of native tongue and speaking comes later. Um, so I was one of those students in high school and college who like loved writing papers <laughs> and um, worked for the student newspaper in college. And I think what writing allows me to do is to understand what I actually think about something. It's like I have to have it externalized. It's a process. It's a process. Of your own thought, yeah. Exactly. And at some point, I guess in college, I realized, oh, sometimes I could write something that would actually benefit other people, that helps other people understand a complex issue or debate or put to words something that they have thought as well. And, you know, I... Thankfully, I got to do that a lot at Christianity Today in terms of writing editorials and essays. There was a sense of, I'm trying to make a sense of something that's really complex, but maybe other people will find it helpful as well and edifying and informational. So that's just, it's the thing, it's such a cliche, but it's the thing that I can't not do even while I might be doing other things professionally on the side. Oh, I, I totally get that. In fact, I spent most of my adult life as a pastor, and I always thought that my role was in, in a substantial measure helping my parish interpret the world around them, to, mm-hmm. to bring ideas together in a way that someone who's watching the world with me may not have strung together or understood, or I was able to give voice to uh, mm-hmm. what they were experiencing. And and you're describing that on the printed page in the way that I would imagine myself on a platform, mm-hmm. but I, I resonate with all that. But then mm-hmm. if you like to write, and for me, writing is... is I, I, I think I write well, but writing mm-hmm. is exhausting for me because I play with every word and it's, it's like, mm. you know, an obsession with perfection. And so I'll go back 15 times and redo it. Mm-hmm. So I don't do as much writing as you do. And I, I've read much of your, much of us, a substantial body of work from uh, Caitlin and you write really well. So I'm, uh, I, I get where you are doing this and you write for some of the, today for some of the world's leading media channels. 
Um, have you ever thought about writing something that was not news or interpretive in the way of fiction or, mm. or uh, journaling in a way that you would publish? <laughs> I get that question a lot. I do, I do keep a journal and I have for 20 years. That's just helping me process my own thoughts. I, I have sometimes gotten the question, have you ever tried fiction? And it is so intimidating to me. There's something about coming up with things on your own. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know how where you would start. So, you know, I could certainly see maybe in retirement or something. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like it's a muscle that's probably within me that just needs to be flexed a little bit. Um, just something a little more creative and expressive. But for whatever reason, I think, you know, the nonfiction writing and the journalistic writing, I, I like trying to make sense of things. And I have a very analytical mind. And that's just where my mind goes. Um, you know, going back to you being a news junkie, I totally resonate with that. And I think it's wanting to understand what is going on right now. What do I need to know to make sense of the world that I'm in? And in some ways, in my mind, like truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get, I, I totally get that. Because what could be more interesting uh, than yes. the truth? In fact, exactly. I have friends who are all psyched up for the Super Bowl, for instance, which is an mm -hmm. entertainment event. For me, election night is the Super Bowl. Who needs who needs that game? <laughs> what what could be more dramatic and uh, provocative mm -hmm. and entertaining? You might say than mm -hmm. watching an election unfold. Uh, so, I, I resonate uh, with where you're coming from on that. And thank you for applying your skill set to helping tell the story and interpret. Mm. Uh, for many of us, events uh, going around the world, and you do that through a. a a paper like the Washington Post or the New York Times, or you're a guest on NPR, you, you have developed a very influential platform in an age when there is a lot of misunderstanding and confusion mm. about mm -hmm. church life, public life, uh, mm -hmm. evangelical church life as a, as a slice of a larger church pie. I mean, there's just so much merit there. In mm -hmm. all of that, Caitlin, you have been a pioneer as a woman. I mean, my understanding is you're the first managing editor at CT who was female and the youngest. Yes. I mean, well, and, and, and here you are, uh, you know, I, I'm your father <laughs> in, in, in terms mm -hmm. of uh, generational motif. And, and here you are already uh, high in a, in a strata of voice and influence and uh, as a woman. Tell me about that. You wrote a book called uh, A Woman's Place. Mm -hmm. Would you describe yourself as a woman's advocate or a feminist? How how would you uh, put a frame for mm -hmm. an audience around your own uh, reference points? Mm -hmm. Yes, I get the feminist question a lot, <laughs> and I and I, you know, you think, it's kind of a, dir it's do you a think dirty. It's a dirty word. Do you think it's a pejorative or, or it's a it's a difficult word because it carries it's baggage? It's a difficult word. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. You can't. I don't think you can say feminist or feminism without so many images and associations and history coming to mind. And so it's not a word that I use a lot, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I don't go around introducing myself as a feminist. Oh, I get that. And it's not a word you would choose for yourself. Yeah, I think in some ways, um, you know, so my my parents, I attribute a lot of what I think of myself as a woman in leadership or in the public square 
I attribute a lot of that to my parents. You know, in a lot of ways, they're kind of dyed in the wool conservative folks, Midwestern folks. But my parents were always very encouraging of me early on to say, we believe you can do and be whatever you put your mind and heart to. And we don't have the expectation that you fit into a certain box or that your life look a specific way. There's really been this sense that we we entrust you to God and to God's leading in your life. And so I think that formation early on, I think especially from my dad, I never thought, well, because I'm, I never internalized the sense mm-hmm. that because I'm a woman, I have to hold back or I have to, my life has to look a certain way. Um, I think over time, especially being a relatively young woman in the workplace, Christianity today at the time was, you know, most editors were men. They had been there for a long time. I was kind of coming up in the ranks and I didn't have a lot of role models. There weren't any other no women in editorial leadership. And I really, I, I struggled for several years. How do I make sense of my role here? And I think in a lot of ways, the reason that I call myself a feminist and why that word resonates for me is because I see the ways that scripture talks about the equal dignity and worth of men and women. It's there in the first pages of scripture. The fact that men and women together bear the image of God and are called to participate in cultural recre- uh, cultural creation and renewal. Jesus's encounters with women, obviously those were pretty, the way that he engaged women as disciples, invited them into that sphere of being his students was pretty revolutionary for the time. And so I, you know, there are a lot of things in the contemporary church that could really discourage me as a Christian woman, but I keep coming back to this sense that I believe God, the Christian God wants women to truly flourish and thrive um, no matter where they find themselves in life and that God is for women. Um, And so the church can and should be as well. So that is my long answer to the question, are you a feminist? Uh, Yes. And this is what I mean by that. (laughs) (laughs) Both an explanation, a definition, and an acknowledgement. So Mm -hmm. that brings me to to the book, A Woman's Place, which has a kind of a subtitle, uh, which is Mm -hmm. uh, a vision of of your calling in the office, at home, in the world. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Give me some, uh, unpack a little bit more about your thinking that's been published in your book, and there's a a copy of it on our screen, I think. Uh, Mm. I know that in the book you talk about work, for instance, and I mean, talk about how words carry baggage, how Mm -hmm. sometimes the word work and women Mm -hmm. in some social communities mm-hmm. are, are not congruous. I mean, obviously, sure. uh, a woman in a traditional role is working in a way, but how work has been seen often as a, as a male pursuit, uh, a providing pursuit, uh, maybe the Industrial mm-hmm. Revolution kind of accelerated that or redefined that for us. And yet, right. you, your, your approach has been, no, no, work is something that God called both genders that he created in his image to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think you're right that the word work, we hear that word as modern Americans and we think, you know, office job, full-time, you know, kind of corporate setting. That's what work is about. It's primarily about a paycheck. And 
I think the Christian account of what work is is so much richer than that. It's really tied to um, stewarding creation for the common good. And that can be in lots of different roles and spheres. Um, So I think about just as a really standard example, someone like a public school teacher, Um, you know, you're tasked with shaping hearts and minds. You're tasked with keeping kids safe. You're tasked with formation and community building. And even in that kind of standard everyday role, not a lot of like fanfare or praise around public (laughs) school teachers. I believe, you know, a Christian who is called into that sphere or role can bless their neighbors in that role. And that's part of what it means to steward creation well as Christians, that it's not just about caring for our own or caring for ourselves or our families, but we're really to um, contribute to communal flourishing. And that's uh, that's at the heart of what work is, is about. And I think that, that both that invitation and responsibility are available to both men yeah. and women. It's it not just the province that, of men to bless the community. Right, right. And actually, I think you could make the argument that when women aren't participating in those roles, the community um, doesn't shine as brightly. You know, we need we need the gifts and insights and life experiences and intuitions of both men and women for a whole community to flourish. And so, you know, it's, I think, because of culture war narratives that have been with us for several decades. Um, You know, people hear work and women and think, well, that's denigrating motherhood. And nothing could be further from the truth in terms of what I think. I mean, I, I talk about my own grandmother in the book who didn't work a day outside the home after she was married. But you would walk into my grandparents' home and she was working. She was... She was laboring yeah, to provide right. with her hands. She was not I a mean, woman of leisure. No, <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I can't, I can't even list all the things that how she occupied her time, but managing a household was, I think, where she believed God had called her. And I see so much beauty and goodness in that kind of work as I do in the work of a public school teacher. And so I think we get tripped up on paid versus unpaid, inside the home, outside the home, but part of what I want to say is, um, you know, work in whatever sphere, if it's done to the glory of God and to bless your your neighbors, it's it's good. And we and that, can call it good. And that should be the definition. Is, is it enhancing the common good and blessing our neighbors mm. for the glory of God? And if that is the channel of vocation, then it should be equally uh, available to men and and women. So, mm-hmm. so as you've described work, I think many people would agree, well, uh, a woman like your grandmother is certainly working. Uh, there's no mm-hmm. way to manage a household and uh, keep it all spinning around. And and most mm-hmm. guys I know, my, maybe I shouldn't project on others myself. <laughs> I could never do. We, my wife and I had four children, and I'll tell you what, it would all be a mess up if she were not managing mm-hmm. all those spinning plates. Most mm-hmm. people would agree with that definition of work, but sometimes the edge is, are there certain work uh, channels that are not appropriate for women or, or reserved for men or vice versa. And that, so mm. people can see women as school teachers. Most of us have grown up in a world of, of mm-hmm. women at the front of the classroom. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I'm just, I don't mean to lead the witness here. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I, I hear you arguing that honestly, 
it, there's not a role definition by gender. It's about what you are gifted to do for the common mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. and for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And that should open up doors that sometimes have been closed. Is that fair? Yeah, and and not to put myself on, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of like judges or, yeah, yes, right, sure. you know, I'm not on that that pedestal by any measure, but I think I had to come to terms with the the sense that I had that God had put me in a position of leadership and influence at my time at Christianity Today and believing that that wasn't a mistake. He didn't make a mistake when he called me into that role as a woman. Mm-hmm. And um, that hasn't always <laughs> been celebrated by every subscriber to Christianity Today. Because but- there'll be some people, you believe there'd be some people in that marketplace that say, wait a minute, uh, she may be a really smart, uh, talented woman, but that's not her place to be mm-hmm. a, a voice driving this magazine. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think some of that would have come down to, is she teaching theology? Or is there some kind of There's the, the theological barrier. formation indirectly that's <laughs> happening? And obviously people read the New Testament and interpret the New Testament to mean different roles in terms of spiritual formation for women. It was pretty indirect. <laughs> I understand, but, but, <laughs> I was, but it was felt. But it was a question, I think, of authority, right? Mm-hmm. And our, our positions of authority in a church or kind of a Christian nonprofit or organization, positions of spiritual authority are those reserved for men. Um, I don't think so, but obviously that that interpretation aligns with my own life experience. <laughs> yeah, right, but I mean, there's so. a scripture where Paul says, I never let a woman teach a man. That's that's a passage from which might be derived the uh, interpretation you've just framed. There are other passages that come to other outcomes, it would seem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in mm-hmm. the church life then, uh, uh, perhaps more so than in the broader secular marketplace these days, there are mm. some uh, hoops to jump through or some barriers to what I would mm-hmm. call gender equity in mm-hmm. the work as you've defined it. Mm-hmm. Do you see that changing or... It's fixed, or how how do you mm. uh, understand the status today? Uh, let me throw out another mm-hmm. thing. So Beth Moore, famously a Southern Baptist woman, one mm-hmm. of the most prolific and influential authors of a generation mm-hmm. in the evangelical world, has mm-hmm. you know seems to have kind of expanded her brand a bit outside the normal <laughs> confines of her th- her church home's theological construct. Mm-hmm. That's caused mm-hmm. some some buzz. Mm-hmm. Do you see? Mm-hmm. What's happening in the Beth Moore story, for instance, has a, a mm. wave of things to come, or is it an anomaly? Any thoughts? Gosh, I hope there are more Beth Moores out there because I just, I so appreciate how Beth has stewarded her voice and influence in recent years. And I'm, in a way, I'm kind of happy for her that she felt a freedom to break out of some of the constraints that she had she took felt a dare, in previous maybe. times. Um, because there's, you know, there's of course been blowback and you know, controversy or questioning in relation to that. But um, yeah, I think that both church institutions as well as the broader public marketplace are 
deprived when we don't have women's voices shaping the conversation, helping to shape the conversation that women need to be, we need to hear from women. Um, And I think Beth was especially, her voice was especially important in relation to um, questions of character around political candidates, um, the experience of abuse and denigration as a woman in the church. I know that a lot of women have responded to what she has shared with, that is my experience. And thank, thank you for saying. She gave what voice I need people to an to identified hear. experience. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I think that's really the experience of a lot of women in Christian organizations and communities. Um, You know, there's not always a listening ear for those experiences, but when someone, you know, someone like Beth Moore speaks up, she obviously has an enormous platform and reach and credibility that changes the conversation I think for the whole church in a, in a way that's life-giving ultimately, even though it's, it has come with a lot of pain and pushback. I live in a, in a Christian tradition that's very orthodox and traditional by any outsider's view. Uh, the church of God of which I'm a part is in the Wesleyan holiness tradition, which has always embraced uh, women in ministry and so on. That's not been a a challenge historically in our theology. But of course, uh, it's a challenge when you wrestle with the Scripture. If, if you're a person alleged to the Bible, uh, defining what the Scriptures commend, permit, and allow on many subjects is sometimes a subject of debate. And the place mm-hmm. of women in in ministry, the place of women in just the social fabric, you know, is interpreted variously. I'm, not, I'm speaking for our audience. I know that these are uh, things you have mastered before. And, and you know, you can proof texts. Like uh, mm. Paul said, I never let a man teach a woman. And I could say, well, yes, but Philip had four daughters who were evangelists. And then somebody else could say, yes, but uh, a woman who well, doesn't... Paul, Paul did not say, I never let a man teach a woman. I, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. <laughs> yeah, well... I think he was okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We never let a woman teach a man. Uh, sorry. And, and, yes. And, but Philip had four daughters of evangelists. And well, in Christ, there's neither Greek nor... Uh, mm-hmm. Jew nor Greek and male nor female and so on. I mean, we mm-hmm. have all this kind of back and forth that as I've wrestled with it myself personally, and, and you know, I'm going to be frank up, uh, as a guy, well, there's, something, there's something attractive about that whole, like men get certain privileges. And I mean, the, there is an ego that mm. can be drawn to that. I'm not suggesting that people who hold a different theological view than I are driven by less than noble motive. I'm just suggesting, I know as a man, to live in a mm. world where there's a certain structure that puts you in a place of privilege in some zones, mm-hmm. I, get, I get how that could, well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But as I wrestle with it myself, it seems to me at the beginning, and you've talked about this already, the, the, the creation narrative establishes the foundation of so much of our social Mm. construct. And in that, we have plainly stated that men and women both bear the image of God. And if that be true, I wonder, I'm just speculating Mm. here, is it possible to have a whole view of God with only one or the other? In other words, to experience Mm -hmm. the wholeness of God. And if if both genders bear his image, neither is complete alone. Mm-hmm. that you must have voice and experience to be whole in your comprehension mm-hmm. of truth 
What do you think? Am I off? Am I crazy? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it is in God's Trinitarian nature to to bring disparate parts together in unity. You know, male and female are distinct and created distinct and are also called to bear God's image together. And the sum is greater than its parts. And so any kind of feminist ideal that thinks that, you know, the world would be better if we just didn't have men, which is kind of a stereotype. Um, I have never thought that. (laughs) I love the men in my life. Um, I I just think is totally off, you know, Um, just as our churches and institutions and public square can't flourish if we're only or primarily hearing from men. The same would be true if we're only or primarily hearing from women. And it's the ability to come together in difference for a greater good um, that is where I think we really see um, what God intended for the genders uh, coming to life and what I believe is possible in Christ, you know, for all the pain that there might be or mistrust between men and women in the church, given greater conversations uh, that are happening culturally, I think there really is an opportunity and possibility for unity amid difference that is ultimately a gospel witness. And when Paul talks about there being neither male nor female, it's not erasing gender. It's saying that gender is no longer kind of the, a barrier for ac- access or entree into the gospel family. So I and, think I think you're I think you're onto something. <laughs> well, well, uh, that brings me to a piece you wrote in the Washington Post in October of 2016, and I, I see it as kind of a marker, maybe uh, in your uh, what should I say, your matriculation in your career. I may be misreading mm-hmm. this, but in October of 2016. If we go back in time, we're in the heat of a presidential contest. Uh, Mm -hmm. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are the two main contenders for the job of president. And a tape is released that uh, shows Mr. Trump uh, getting off a bus famously uh, with uh, Billy Bush and and making some um, crude references to the way in which he interacts with women. And that mm-hmm. became a sensation as that tape hit, hit the public square. And, of mm-hmm. course, there was a lot of drama in the political campaigns, I'm sure, on both sides of the aisle, for the Clintons knowing how to respond to that, for the Trump campaign uh, knowing what to do with that. And, mm-hmm. and as we all understand, uh, it, was a, it was a very big dust-up. Uh, Mr. Trump made some comments, and he said, well, uh, you know what, uh, I, I shouldn't have said that. It's just kind of locker room talk. He, he kind of packaged it as, mm. well, you know, not good thing for me to do. I, I've, I've said a lot of things. I'm putting words in his mouth, but you know, we all say things that <laughs> that we wish we hadn't said. Uh, but you know, honestly, it's just it's just the way things go down when you're in a locker room. And I wasn't in a locker mm-hmm. room, so therefore, uh, my apologies. <laughs> and case closed. I mean, that was kind of the the explanation. And on the other side, there was a huge, appalling horror. This is a. A misogynist, someone who does not respect women, and so on and so forth. And that became the debate, as we all understand, Mr. Trump won that election. You wrote in that mm-hmm. epic, that period of time, a piece for the Washington <laughs> Post where you said, well, evangelical women, this is the last straw. They are yeah. done with Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, this is so over the top, this tape, that, uh, you know what, they, they must be... Uh, this is the, the nail in the coffin of his... Uh, 
approach and appeal to evangelical women. But as we learned, uh, many rallied around the Trump cause anyway. And here we are in 2020, uh, even though Mr. Trump did not win the 2020 election, still a lot of the data and polling would say many, mm-hmm. many evangelical women were still mm-hmm. on the Trump train. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm giving all that mm-hmm. set up for you to share your <laughs> thoughts. I mean, what do you think... What do you think about this development or this reality from 2016 to 2020 mm. when you forecast there would be a, a, a real pushback? And actually, there wasn't so much, it seemed, in the community of evangelical women. What would you, mm. what, to what would you attribute that or how would you interpret mm. that? Yeah. Well, to give a little bit of context for that very tumultuous time in our country's history. So the day that the news of the Access Hollywood tape was released was my last day at Christianity Today. You know, I had given my three weeks notice before that. I was packing up. One of my colleagues comes into my office and says, did you hear about this Trump news? I was like, no. And honestly, just like, I'm so glad I don't have to think about it because I'm burnt out. I want to, I want a sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a cauldron of controversy. And then like, you know, three days later, I wrote that Washington Post piece. I was on CNN for five minutes trying to give voice. Okay, how are evangelical women responding to these comments? And based on what I was observing from some high-profile evangelical women, not just Beth Moore, but you know Kay Warren of Saddleback and Christine Kane, Julie Royce, um, just the women who are thoroughly, you know, evangelical, theologically, orthodox, probably have supported many Republican candidates in the past. But wow, they're really speaking out in a way that I haven't noticed before. Surely this is kind of a a bellwether for where evangelical women are with the campaign and how they're going to vote. And obviously I wasn't right. And a lot of people just were, I think we underestimated the alliance between the white evangelical movement and the Republican Party. And I mean, this was an unusual election in that we seem to have a Republican candidate who arguably has said and done things that kind of fly in the face of what Christians would consider, um, you know, marks of character. And so, I, you know, I grew up hearing Characters really in personal character, personal morality is really important in terms of who we elect and who we choose for our political leaders. And so that that was the surprise. I would attribute that to a couple things. I think a lot of evangelical women um, are very concerned, they continue to be concerned about abortion and the the number of unborn children whose lives are taken every year. And I think when you when you think about that cost and that tragedy, a lot of Christians are willing to kind of make a pragmatic argument to say, "Well, I don't like the, I don't like this political leader. No, I'm not going to have him lead my church, or I'm not going right. to have him, you know, teach my kids or whatever." But listen, he he's he's in charge. He has the power as a as a political leader to maybe change policy or to elect Supreme Court justices or nominate Supreme Court justices. And so we have to just make a bargain, right? And that was, I think, that language of bargaining. Like, mm-hmm. if 
if we grant this person power and we kind of get behind this person, then we'll get certain kind of, we'll want to, we'll, changes that we want to see will be enacted because this person has promised to do that. Um, so I think a lot of evangelical women probably kind of rationalized it in that way. Um, but I, also, I'm not entirely sure that Christians writ large are turned off by Donald Trump. I think a lot of, evangelical Christians who feel like the cultural tides are changing so quickly. Um, the concerns about religious liberty, concerns about free speech, concerns about the ability to gather and assemble um, and, and believe based on conscience. If those are concerns that you have about the future, then someone who comes along and says, you know, I'm not... I'm not like a gentle, meek person. I'm a fighter and I'm, I'm going to fight for you. I'm always going to fight for you. I mean, that, I think that's exactly what Trump promised evangelicals. And a lot of evangelicals wanted to hear that mm-hmm. and, and, and wanted to believe that someone in Washington, D.C. would be for them and fight for them and fight for the things that they hold dear. And so if anybody's spent any time reading things that I've written, (laughs) I was not pleased with this outcome. I think that that bargain will have some detrimental effects and already has had detrimental effects for the church. But I understand why a a lot of sensibility about it. Yes. I understand the pragmatic rationale and I understand the concerns that a lot of Christians have about cultural changes in this country and how they're affected by them. And someone who says, I'm going to defend you and fight for you, that sounds really good if you if you feel um, concerned about the future. Well, and I, I have a good friend uh, who you would probably recognize him if I disclosed it, uh, who has said to me more than once, and, and he's very fascinated by politics. He's not a politician, but he pays attention. And he said, you know, we often want to go into a ballot box and we want to choose between two candidates who have A grades. Uh, but actually what we get are candidates, one's a D and one's an F or, you know, the, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and part of the analysis of the 2016 contest for people was, well, who, it may not be an A grade candidate, but it's better than the F grade candidate or so on and so right. forth. And, and so the bargaining, the, the calculation that we live in an imperfect world and we make choices about what, what we consider to be the primary imperatives of outcome when it comes mm-hmm. to public policy. So mm-hmm. I, I get that. But you you just referenced that you believe that while you can understand that whole train of thought, you feel mm-hmm. like there's a price to pay for it, that mm-hmm. there there will be some negative impacts on the mm-hmm. church consequent to it. What, what did you mean by that? So I've spoken with a lot of fellow millennial Christians who grew up evangelical about their experience of the election. And for a lot of them, the election was almost like an existential crisis because leaders, national leaders, national Christian leaders who they grew up hearing on the radio or on the TV, or they read their books, you know, people with a lot of influence Um, shaped them, this younger generation, to believe that questions of not just personal character, but truth and integrity 
and decency needed to be of top priority when we're talking about political leaders and who we place our trust in. And for a lot of those younger Christians, they felt like betrayed by the older generational leaders. You, in the, you in told their own me, faith community. Yeah. Like, you, yeah. You, I heard from you growing up that character matters, character counts, but that doesn't, how is that aligning with your actions and your words now? So there, I think there was a question of who can I trust? You know, who can I trust to, um, as a spiritual leader, if you're saying one thing and you're doing something else, who do I trust? I also think that, I mean, this is, this is to some extent a stereotype, but I do think a case could be made that younger Christians do want a more holistic approach to public life. Um, and so they very may, may well care about the rates of abortion in this country. And they're also concerned about um, compassionate immigration reform or the refugee communities showing up in their in their neighborhood. How do we care for refugees and immigrants? And how does our how does our national policy affect how we approach mm-hmm. these communities? They're not so monolithic in their issue uh, framing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 just the very basic bedrock uh, Christian commitment to human dignity would actually inform how the church engages all sorts of political issues and policy issues. And um, unfortunately, and this is true with anytime you align with one political party or candidate in a two-party system, it seems like you're working in this binary that makes you choose between different issues and makes you say, well, this is more important than the other. And I think a lot of Christians right now they don't like either, you know, they're, they don't like either candidate in, in the last two elections that we've had. They're not really happy with either candidate and they kind of feel politically homeless. And I think until our public life is function, uh, functions to allow for more than, you know, two parties, a lot of Christians will feel kind of caught in that binary and feel like they have to rank certain issues above others when they when they step into the voting booth and that there's something dissatisfying about that. Well, and <clears throat> I'm asking you this question, Kevin, because in your professional life now, you're interviewing people in a broad spectrum of churches uh, in the mm-hmm. evangelical world. I mean, I can, I can speak about my faith community, but that's not the same as talking to... F- to 20 or 50 other key voices and, and you're interviewing people. And, and so I'm, I'm asking you this question, given your broad exposure, not necessarily even about what your preferred outcome is, but just what your, your sense of the pulse is. And am I hearing you say that based on your exposure, you believe that there is a crisis of confidence and trust in a new generation, mm-hmm. in conventional or traditional church leadership and structures mm-hmm. consequent to the way in which people have been forced into these hard choices uh, that seems counterintuitive to some of this new generation. Is that, am I reading that right? Yeah. And certainly that's also just connected to the decline in institutional life across the board. Every yeah. every major institution in American life is is facing a crisis of trust you know, just to take one example from my world, when you hear about 
fake news <laughs> and kind of a distrust of of kind of the these media institutions that 30 or 40 years ago most Americans would have said here are you know the kind of reputable credible sources that I go to we all kind of go to some of the same sources to understand what's happening in our country there's so much distrust in elite media institutions right now that you, and of course with the internet you have just the proliferation of writers and sources and websites that are telling you this is the truth and how do you sort out what is true and what is not if you can't put your trust in uh long-standing institutions that do seem to have at least you know methods of fact finding and verification so this is happening in every major institution in the country, and I don't think the church is exempt from that. And I think you know, this um, relates to another topic I've written about, which is the QAnon conspiracy. Yeah, let's talk I, about that, because it's a natural segue. It, it has had mm-hmm. huge impacts, it seems, on the way in which many of our church people think. I mean, we can mm-hmm. talk about QAnon as a, a phenomenon across mm-hmm. the country, but in our church community, it has taken root, it seems to me. Mm. Yeah, I I started following this story last summer. I was seeing a lot of pastors online talk about how much their people in their church community were kind of spreading some of the, the QAnon stories on social media, and they didn't really know how to respond. Um, so QAnon is a conspiracy theory that really took hold at the end of 2016 in different internet forums. And it posits that uh, former President Trump and military officials are trying to expose this, what they call a deep state kind of pedophile ring involving people from Hollywood and the media and different leaders in the Democratic Party. And this mostly is proliferating online. I would say it operates more like a belief system. than kind of, uh, it's it's speaking more to how people see the world and how people interpret complicated national and global events. And these pastors, when they talked to me for a piece that I wrote last summer, just said, we don't really know how to, we don't know how to respond to this because our church members are spending seven, eight hours a day online (laughs) in these internet forms, reading and digging and going into the rabbit hole. We only get them for an hour a week, you know, and a lot of these churches aren't meeting in person, Mm -hmm. you know, during the the pandemic. So the pastors really felt like this was almost a discipleship crisis. How do we shape the hearts and minds of the people that we only see an hour a week when what's happening online in these internet forums is so much more compelling and so much more engaging and speaks to them in a way that, you know, my sermon doesn't apparently. Well, it's a kind of exotic. <laughs> well, let's go back to what QAnon is. Q mm-hmm. is a letter of the alphabet that, mm-hmm. uh, as I understand it, in this uh, way of thinking, is an individual. Mm-hmm. Q is a is a non-diplom for somebody who's yes. buried deep in the deep state, who's able to disclose hints and, and directions or interpretive analysis from their position of knowledge. Right. But okay, Right. 
Does anyone have any idea where that started or who that is? I mean, it just seems to me there must be a way to get back to who is Q? Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? And another mm-hmm. question maybe you can help clarify for all of us is it, it traffics when we talk about the internet. We, you know, I mean, okay, so I'm from Seattle. I know that I'm the minority, but I'm a Bing guy. I don't do Google, I do Bing because I'm a Microsofty. <laughs> Just saying, you know, I have not talked to someone who uses Bing in a really long time. <laughs> I'm just so. saying, so call me a dinosaur. Uh, I, that's not fair. I'm sorry. Sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Microsoft. <laughs> I love the pictures. No, whatever, yeah, whatever but, search engine works well, for you. When is we great. think of when we think of uh, internet, we, we think of mm-hmm. kind of like a search engine like Google or whatever. But right. there are there are other kind of things that take you down deeper in like a 4chan. 4chan mm-hmm. seems to be a a zone where the Q theories flourish. Talk to us about mm-hmm. who is Q? Who or how do we find mm. out or has anyone figured that out? What's 4chan? <laughs> These are good questions. To my knowledge, yes, a Q is understood to be an individual who purports to be part of the deep state. So kind of this um someone who has access to hidden intelligence and Q will they call them drops he or she leaves these hints or kind of almost like decoder messages. This is going to happen. Watch for this. This is what it means. So people who really are following Q are kind of wait to see what Q is going to say. To my knowledge, we don't know who Q is. There have been theories that it is actually President Trump or someone close to Trump because it, you know, Q anon as a theory is definitely a kind of pro-Trump uh, worldview because Trump is fighting the bad guys, basically. He's presented 4chan, as the... Her, President Trump in Q theory is the hero. Yes, yeah. yes. Whether he's yes. associated with it all. I mean, you're just saying we, that yeah. some people wonder, is there some kind of is there voice coming a from a Trump camp? But we don't really know that. He's just, he's the hero of the narrative. Right, yeah, right. right. Um. In terms of 4chan, so my understanding is that technically 4chan is now 8chan. (laughs) It is a internet forum kind of message board. I don't know if you've ever spent any time on Reddit, but kind of Mm -hmm. an an open source, anybody can post. But it really prides itself on people being able to say whatever they want. There's 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 no no boundaries. There are no boundaries. There are no... To my knowledge, there are no real forms of censorship. It would take a lot for you to like get kicked off of 8chan. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the primary sources of information for, for QAnon adherents. But also Facebook. I mean, I know that Facebook has, has kind of tried to um, monitor some of that uh, information. They would call it misinformation uh, via their, their forum. But... I know that Facebook, with the pastors that I spoke with last summer, that's where they were seeing the spread of the QAnon stories, um, people spending a lot of time on Facebook. so. But Q, I, if yeah. Q is an individual, and yet the source of the drops, I mean, it, it's, am I right in understanding this? It's very difficult to trace the origins of the drops, these these tidbits, these cryptic messages, that they somehow get integrated into online conversations. But boy, unraveling this down to where did that start um, mm. is a mystery. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of the nature of the QAnon drops that they can be interpreted in multiple ways. So in some ways, you you will see the truth of QAnon if you're already bought in because the messages are just cryptic enough that you could interpret certain national events to align with whatever the drop is. I mean, it's a little bit like, I think of like a horoscope. Like if you already believe that horoscopes can tell you about your life, yes. you're going to find some, you're going to find something that resonates in it, whether or not it <laughs> sure, actually sure, sure, sure. tells you something true. So I think it, it operates um, in a similar way. And I think, you know, unfortunately, um, well, what is tricky and I think important for Christians to try to figure out a lot of QAnon theory traffics in biblical language as well, kind of we're putting on the full armor of God, we're fighting, we're the good guys, we're, we're part of God's mm-hmm. army or God's battle to fight evildoers. Um, and so I think for people in positions of discipleship responsibility, how do you help people separate out what is actually biblical and what's being co-opted from biblical language to kind of make people think that it's a Christian thing when I I don't really think it is. I don't, I personally don't think that QAnon has much of anything to do with the person of Christ. And so we might argue that, you know, people can play Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, they they can go to a Star Trek convention or, you know, Mm. there's all kinds of ways in which people can Mm. express their fascination and imagination Mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, story and and so on. Is it really dangerous? What difference does it make? I mean, I get that the pastor Mm. may be wondering, how do I engage my congregation when I have people who are spending so much time on this track, but is it really a a danger to the church or a, a threat of some kind, or is it simply a, mm. a kind of a hobby? <laughs> what would you say? It's an interesting hobby. <laughs> um, that is a really good question. So, I mean, this is a kind of an extreme example of the ways that it can be dangerous. And, you know, thankfully um, there haven't been more events like this, but really the the QAnon conspiracy theory came, kind of came onto the national spotlight in, 2016, shortly before the the national election where a man from North Carolina had read that there was this pedophile ring being operated out of a pizza shop in Washington, D.C. And he was so, um, he he just felt like he had to do something, you know, like he had to go and stop this thing from happening. Because he believed there were children held hostage in the pizza basement. Right, right. And so he shows up there um, you know, there aren't, he doesn't find that to be true, but he's, he came in with three, you know, he came in armed with three loaded guns. And thankfully, you know, n- nobody was hurt, but I think you could then fast forward to what happened at the Capitol in January. A lot of people who were there where, you know, five people, including a police officer died were there because they believed this was some kind of fulfillment of the Q prophecies. So if you if you go underneath, you know, like what is what is causing people to either enact violence or, you know, attempt to enact violence as it relates to the conspiracy theory, there is a kind of extremist position that 
that people who are in it, it's, it's not just a hobby. It's not just something you kind of fiddle with in line. There's something obsessive about it. And anecdotally hearing from people who would say like, my friends and family, some of them have gotten really into this and they refuse to talk to us anymore because we have questioned some of what they're sharing on Facebook or they don't want to have anything to do with anybody who questions um, what they're purporting to be true. I think that's where relationally it does get dangerous, that sense that there would actually be a breaking of fellowship over this conspiracy theory um, is concerning. I, I think, you know, I don't have any family members who have invested in this, but I can imagine how painful it would be to feel like, wow, I, I haven't talked to my brother in four years because he doesn't, he doesn't want to engage me anymore because I've, I've questioned this. So the oh. extremism and, and all or nothing nature of it, I think is, is the real concern. Well, what you just described is a kind of cult-like outcome. Right. Where where a group of people al align with a certain set of ideas to the extreme that it's exclusionary and isolating, mm -hmm. but also deeply motivating in the pursuit mm -hmm. of a cause. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the evangelical magazine World, mm -hmm. which ran a mm -hmm. cover story on uh, QAnon and mm -hmm. and described it as a kind of cult like phenomenon, and right. uh, where. We're expressing concerns that many Christian people who who believe in an unseen reality. I, I mean, I do too. Mm. I, I live in a world mm -hmm. of both material and spiritual dimension. Mm -hmm. uh, and and what I read suggested that because of that reality, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. people may be prone to f to pursue other kinds of um, well inauthentic expressions that merge. Mm. Uh, prophetic voice with uh, political outcomes and, uh, well, far out theories that have no evidence. There's no evidence in real experience. And, and right. interesting, Caitlin, as we're talking today, just this week, I received uh, in my email a, a note from someone on the West Coast that I've known for a lifetime who grew up in the church and so on. And he was anxious that I read this document, which I believe is mm. Q-sourced, mm. and it purports to be a deposition taken uh, by an attorney, Lynn Wood. I don't know if it's, I, I just don't know if Lynn Wood is involved in it. That's a, an attorney who's played a, a role in the uh, Georgia electoral disputes, mm. among mm -hmm. other things. But anyway, it purports to be this deposition taken by his office to, with a person who's alleging pedophilia and so on, and alleges that the former vice president, Mike Pence, is actually engaged and that he's participating in this whole scheme because he's being blackmailed because of evidence that he himself uh, has dabbled with pedophilia or homosexuality or something that would damage his brand. And I mean, mm. I mean and they're sending it to me because I'm personally acquainted with Mike Pence. And mm. they want to know, so do you, are you mm. aware of this? What are you going to mm. do about it? And, and that's, it's preposterous. I mean, it just seems so absurd. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose people could live on Mars and, and be green with five legs, but that would be more likely <laughs> than what I read in the purported mm. deposition. And yet, mm. the persons who are sending it to me are people that I would otherwise have thought 
were smart and right and good and strong and critical thinkers. Right. I, I think it's well. I want to hear first. How did you respond to this person? I haven't yet. I'm. I'm. I'm that's why I have you here, Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no, I haven't responded. Except I have to say, I think it's preposterous. Right, right. And to challenge the the you know the sourcing, where did you get this from, and are you certain that it's really what it purports to be? And right uh, is is Lynn Wood really involved with this? And did you get this from him, or where did it come from? Or is it simply mm-hmm. is it simply a form that was filled out? This is probably the danger of the internet because things can appear to be mm-hmm. uh, you know on the letterhead and that that aren't really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think you're your story and I I will be thinking about you as you figure out how to respond. That is certainly a, a challenge. Um, I think it, it does put to lie the notion that only, I don't know, people who are uneducated would, That's right. would accept QAnon or, or ascribe to some of its claims. Um, yeah. I, I, I've just anecdotally heard of people who we would consider highly educated successful, um, critical thinkers are in. And I'm just fascinated to know how that happens and why it happens. And it seems like you have to say more than just, well, that's preposterous because if you point them to what you consider to be credible news sources, the response is, well, those those news outlets are in on it too, right? <laughs> well, and, and, and let me ask you this question then. Because we all understand that there's been a a devolution of trust in media and mm-hmm. so on, and maybe some with with some legitimacy in some cases where people may have had a a bias mm-hmm. that they did not disclose. Everyone is biased at some level, but some people mm-hmm. would play that without disclosing their own uh, uh, bias. But that said, I have no journalism experience except I was on my high school newspaper staff. I was the associate editor of my high school paper. But I mean, even at that elementary level of journalism, there were certain protocols. We mm-hmm. can't write a story about the football team unless we do these checks and mm-hmm. sourcing and so on. What would right. you say is something that someone should look for? What may, so you're contributing to the Washington Post or the New York Times. Uh, that mm-hmm. suggests to me that you believe that they're credible. Mm-hmm. And you know some of the an ordinary response would be, well, I know they're credible, uh, and while people may not like some stories they've read there, they have certain protocols, they don't publish mm-hmm. things, and if they make a mistake, they'll retract that kind of thing. Right. What, what are the protocols for the layperson uh, mm. to understand as they evaluate a news source? What should, what mm-hmm. should a news source be doing to mm. make its presentation credible? Right. Well, it sounds really kind of basic, but any statement of fact needs to be verified either by digging into medical records, legal records, getting people on the phone and talking to them on the records so that if questions arise about the veracity of your story, you have receipts, so to speak. You have you have the record. You have an objective authentication. Uh, authentic, yeah, processes of authentication are obviously very important. Um, you know, it's important for for all news media to try to be balanced. And what balanced means isn't that you can't make any conclusions about certain actors in a story based on the what you have as evidence or as as the factual details. But for example, if you're reporting something that 
places an organization or a person in a negative light, you absolutely need to do due diligence to call the person or the organization and try to get them to speak on record. You're not just going forward with a story based on a one-sided account, but you acknowledge, you know, there there could be multiple accounts of the same story and you need to try to um, include that multiplicity of accounts in your in your piece as much as possible. Um, obviously, uh, you know, working with people who, with reporters who are good at keeping their own opinions to themselves <laughs> is not to say that reporters just should never have opinions. I think there's kind of this false understanding that, um, you know, reporters and journalists just don't have any actual thoughts about what's going on. But you, you there, do, there does need to be an appropriate boundary when you're reporting that you're checking your own biases. It doesn't mean you don't have biases, but you're, you know, you're running a piece by someone on the news staff who comes at something from a different perspective just to check. Is there something in here that I'm I'm wording this in a certain way that actually isn't fair? Am I representing people and their views the way that they would actually talk about their views? Or am I kind of using a pejorative word or language. So I think that's one of the the major reasons why so many Americans do distrust a lot of media institutions is they feel like it's veered into essentially opinion writing. And, that, um, and what we just talked about earlier about your piece in the Washington Post in 2016 was an op-ed page. I mean, it was an opinion mm-hmm. piece. It was not mm-hmm. a news report. It was right. branded as a reflection Representing right. your views, differentiated from a story you might have written about QAnon in religious news service, which actually right. is simply reporting these people I interviewed and this is what they said. Right, and I will say that's where I think, in terms of a reader coming to a news story, I think we need better media literacy. You know, and especially when you're getting your news online, there are so many tabs open. <laughs> where am I getting this link? Did I find it on social media? Did I find it in my email? Did I find it, you know, on Bing, like through the Google search, <laughs> or not Google, through the Bing search engine? Yeah. Um, it can be really hard to, as a reader, differentiate between, is this a reported piece? Is this an analysis piece? Is this an op-ed? Is this from the editorial page? Just even understanding the different types of journalism can help us better receive or understand what we're reading on the internet. And, and, that, and that takes practice. And that would certainly be true on air. Uh, mm. I think one of our challenges has been that in the cable news development, people appear at anchor desks in the way we used to see an anchor desk as a news report. And yet right. the program may not actually be a news report. It's actually an opinion piece. But the yes. set suggests mm, that's what, a really good what, point. what we have grown up with as a as a kind of uh, objective reporting. And it's maybe not intended to deceive. It's just, if I'm going to be on television, I should probably have a, a table over my legs. <laughs> but I'm just saying that yes. all of that, so you have to kind of think it through because just because it's someone talking on a news channel mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's necessarily even intended to be news. It's simply right. an interpretation of the news by design. Yeah, And it's my, I mean, this is going to sound really like cranky of me, but... I would say don't get your primary news from TV because the medium of TV is intended to be entertainment. <laughs> and so it it creates a type of information 
provision that is more controversy, it stirs controversy, it stirs kind of strong opinions, strong reactions, because that's what people come back for, you know? They they come back for the feeling of outrage or I can't believe this controversy is happening. I need to hear the next thing. And I just think we understand what's happened. It's not, it's, I'm not making a hard and fast rule for everybody, like never watch TV news. But I would say try to read it first and just spend some time with the words before going to, you know, your favorite. Well, and you can reread something in the moment. On television, it moves on fast to the next thing. And so I can can more thoughtfully engage content Mm -hmm. when I'm reading it. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Well, I mean, there's so much there that we have... Without a lot of thought, I think most of us in the public have moved into uh, a speed of information that we haven't Mm -hmm. thought through the sourcing and, and the framing... And we've mm-hmm. just kind of assumed some uh, credibility when maybe it's not there because there's not the protocols of authentication. There's not mm-hmm. the history of professional accountability. Mm-hmm. And then we accept just because of the way it's presented. You know, there's so much that's changed in the whole publishing industry. You're an author, you've published a book, you write in print media. I mean, how did, first of all, how do you move into where you are right now? In other words, you are mm-hmm. you're contributing to several different media outlets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that something you did by design or something that that just kind Mm. of fell upon you? That's a good question. Well, my full-time day-to-day job is not writing for news media (laughs) because it is very hard to to support yourself on freelance writing. Um, So I day-to-day work for a Christian book publisher doing acquisitions. So I, I acquire new books into our editorial program. I'm very fortunate to still get to write on the side. Um, I think the doors really opened, honestly, when I left Christianity Today. I felt a freedom to write as myself in a way that I didn't Mm -hmm. when I worked at Christianity Today and felt like I had to represent this whole institution. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say you know, most of the writing that I did at the time, I wanted it to be in CT. I didn't feel like I could kind of contribute to these competitors, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I mean, as soon as I left CT, it just happened to coincide with the 2016 election. And then all of a sudden there were these um, news outlets that were really interested in help having someone explain different dimensions of the evangelical movement. And... I found myself with, you know, the the understanding of that world as well as the time um, to write more. And I, I still love to do that. I, I hope to be able to continue to do that even while I'm working full-time as a book editor. Um, you know, honestly, I... It's a... It's been a an exhausting four years to be publishing online, and I have found it to be spiritually healthy to take breaks from the internet because there's so much opinion, there's so much anger. You know, I've seen people who I know have a great relationship in real life bicker at each other in the Facebook comments and 
Um, it's just kind of a whole new world. I think social media more than anything has changed the way that we interact with each other, especially in a time when we're not seeing a lot of people in person. And I, I you know, other people have written about this, but I, I do think that it, it has spiritual effects that mm-hmm. potentially do more harm than good. So I have had to learn rhythms for myself that that ensure that I can stay mentally, emotionally, spiritually healthy, even while I feel like I'm supposed to be writing on the internet to some extent. You're a woman of faith uh, by your own profession here in this conversation, uh, a person who chose to follow Jesus. You just referred to the fact that you uh, sometimes have to take a break from the internet because you feel like it's spiritually <laughs> exhausting as well as mentally mm. straining. You know, what mm. advice would you give to someone who says, I, I really, I'm a Jesus person. I want to do the right thing. I want to interpret my world correctly. Where mm. would you steer them to find mm. content? Or what advice would you give them to kind of mm-hmm. frame their search? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think that as Christians, we're intended to seek truth in community. And so um, the process of trying to understand the world and contemporary events and thorny, complex issues is best discerned with other people. Um, We need other people to kind of grasp the full truth. And I think a part of that too is in the body of Christ, making sure that we're in conversation with people who read the news differently from us, who have different political convictions, um, who have different ways of thinking about public life. Um, You know, I have had to check some of my own biases. I think we should always be trying to... um, just acknowledge that we all have lenses through which we see the world and no lens of ours is, it's it's always going to be blinkered, right? We're never seeing the full picture. Being in conversation with people who can help us get a fuller picture, um, whom we can disagree with in love. And that feels like such a radical thing right now um, to have difficult conversations and disagree and still maintain relationship. It's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. Um, it takes a lot of work, but I think, I think that's what our world wants. I think, I think at the end of the day, I think a lot of people recognize that our our public discourse is broken, and the internet hasn't helped us. And I haven't always done a good job of that. And so, more practically to your question, taking breaks, just like I, I have an app that just literally blocks me from getting on social media for certain periods of the day. Sometimes I turn it on for a week if I have like a really busy work week and I'm just like, you know what? I just need, I need to block that out. Um, You know, I try not to get on during the weekends. So finding rhythms Mm -hmm. of rest and rhythms of quiet and then being able to come back so that you can come back and engage better and in a more grounded way, I think is something I've had to learn by trial and error. You know, he just reminded me of a friend I have. He's a psychologist. And he. I was asking him about his practice during the pandemic. And mm. has he seen any changes in his practice in the patient's dream consequent to these days of the pandemic? He said, oh, yes, absolutely. I said, well, how so? And he said, well, I have so many more people who are having trouble sleeping. 
I said, really? And why? Do, to what do you attribute? He says, well, it's, it's about the isolation of the pandemic that's driven people to even increased uh, online and mm-hmm. cell phone engagement. And he said, just mm-hmm. even in the, the light itself, the way in which it triggers uh, our brain neurons and everything, that it creates, right. it creates an absence of rest. Makes it mm-hmm. harder to rest, and so he, he was prescribing mm-hmm. just what you said for a different reason: to stay mm-hmm. healthy, make mm-hmm. sure that you draw some boundaries around your time, so that mm-hmm. you are not overwhelmed. Because you're even physically, it takes a toll beyond the the mm-hmm. mental uh, hoops. So, yeah, I, I so appreciate that. You know, Kaylin, you you watch the world. Uh, you're very savvy, I think, in the way in which you gather information. You've been, actually, even as you have answered my questions, you've done so with a certain kind of, I'll call journalistic aplomb, carefully, <laughs> uh, you know, phrasing yes. and, and so on. And uh, that's yes. something I can appreciate. I think the world would be better if more of us uh, engage there. Uh, you've suggested, you know, maybe our, our communities, and especially if we'll allege ourselves to a community of diverse perspectives, can help us navigate all the bombardment of news, which makes me wonder, you know, our churches might step up and become safe mm-hmm. places for community conversation that is not uh, all driven by the same ideology. And mm-hmm. of course, in the gospel, I, I want to be with people who also understand Jesus as Lord. But when it comes to interpreting my events, I know there are people that I, I count as brothers and sisters in Christ who see the world differently. I need to find mm-hmm. that place. Uh, here's a word to our churches that, you know, maybe we can with intentionality create that space. Uh, mm-hmm. In some way, but having said all that, your your grasp and 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 view suggests to me that you might have a forecast for the future. Is there something that you're seeing <laughs> in the way the church is functioning or not, and and the world around it, and all this intersection of politics and so on mm. that gives you hope? Are, are you are you optimistic, mm. or are you concerned in a way that makes you think? I don't know. So I have to be hopeful because we are told to hope and because our hope rests in the Lordship of Christ and God redeeming all things and working all things together for the good of those who love him. So that is my spiritual answer. And that is, and that is truly what I, mean, I believe at the end of the day. It's legit, absolutely. <laughs> I think I do think, and you know, this is this is a combination of taking what I what I read and trends that I follow and church leaders I talk to and also just gut. I do think that the church is in a time, the American church, I should say, is in a time of difficult refinement. Um, I think that there are aspects of church life and organizations that just need reform and um, and a kind of checking of allegiances and where we where we place our ultimate hope as Christians in America. I don't necessarily have hope that the church is going to grow in size in the next 10 years, 20 years, 100 years. I know that's very... Um, <laughs> it's kind of arrogant for me to like try to predict, you know, church growth in a hundred years. Who knows where we'll be then? Um, 
So I, I think we're in a time of refinement. I think we're in a time where we're, we are seeing um, lots of church attendance decline across the board. I think I'm hopeful that what this time brings is a, a church that puts first things first, that is a true witness of the love and goodness and mercy of Christ to a watching world that is known for loving and serving our neighbors sacrificially, um, that is known for being places where people can disagree sometimes vehemently and still love each other. Um, So it's not necessarily a good news story in terms of the church just booming or Christianity kind of gaining this posture of ascendance in our culture. You know, I don't think, I think those days are, are over behind us. And there are questions about whether we were ever in that place to begin with. Um, but I, I, I am hopeful that God will lead our churches to a place of um, greater beauty in the years to come. And the people who give me hope are like, they're not people I follow on Twitter. They're people I, you know, they're my old pastor in Chicago or they're my dear friend in Alabama. They're the Christians I know in flesh and blood who live for Christ in such beautiful ways and ways that don't get any praise or accolades or get any attention. They're never a headline. Right, exactly. I don't don't find... (laughs) the hope for the church and the headlines at all. I find it in the lives of the people I know and love. Do you believe that it's possible for the church, and I don't necessarily mean the institutional church, but the, the people of God, to mm. withdraw from the contest of political ideas and uh, policy? Mm. Do you think, is that part of the challenge? Is that part of the, the problem mm. or is that part of the opportunity? I mean, it's it's this tension about what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world. Because on one hand, I would say, you know, when when human dignity is at stake, we are called to engage our politics. But I I so I don't think that we can totally withdraw. I don't even know what that would look like. You know, we're not going back to the monasteries anytime soon. Um, but I do think that there is a sense of needing to depoliticize our primary identity and what we place our ultimate hope in and figure out a way to um, stay engaged in the world without thinking that politics, especially our two-party system, is going to like solve everything. Like Jesus is not on the ballot. <laughs> every every political leader will will fail us or not live up to our hopes and expectations on, on some level. Um. And so I'm, you know, it's hard for me to imagine withdrawing entirely. I don't think that's what we're called to do, but we're also called to place our ultimate hope and trust in a kingdom that is not of this world. And how you live in that tension is is messy, but I think it's where we're called to be. I'm so glad, Caitlin, that you're uh, living in that tension. <laughs> Thanks for being that uh, eyes and ears that helps us all understand a little better from your perch and your relationships, your contacts, and your avenues of communication about just what is actually going on around us. I mean, it's so important. That's why I'm a news junkie, actually, because mm. uh, I cannot live in isolation from the world around me. It doesn't mean that I can be a driver, but I do mm-hmm. need to be aware. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for helping make us aware. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, for being a great conversation partner today and for such such thoughtful questions. A journalist always loves really good thoughtful well, questions. So well, you've been... I'll consider that very high praise coming from an expert. <laughs> and hey, let me just say, from a guy who lives in the cornfield of Indiana, about 90 mm-hmm. minutes from Dayton, every yeah. place has its charm. Don't yes. take the, I'm telling you, don't take that big city for granted. So awesome, <laughs> York. <laughs> Enjoy. Thank you. All right. Godspeed. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.